In this SMA space panel discussion, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Gerritsen has requested that we keep his portion of the panel restricted to the password-protected SMA SharePoint site. To access a full audio file, which also includes the Q&A portion of the speaker session, please email Ms. Nicole Peterson at npeterson at nsiteam.com for further information. Okay, perfect. All right, so we'll go ahead and get started. So I'd first like to thank everyone for dialing into this SMA space panel discussion entitled Outer Space Earthly Escalation, Chinese Perspectives on Space Operations and Escalation, and especially thank all of our speakers for taking the time to present today. Today we have Dr. Nicholas Wright, Mr. Bruce McDonald, Mr. Dean Cheng, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Gerritsen, Dr. Namrata Goswami, and Dr. Brian Whedon all here with us. Hopefully everyone that's dialed in received their event booklet, uh, our presenter's white paper, and their slides, which I sent out in an event invitation. And if you haven't received these materials, you can feel free to email me and I'll send those over to you. So now I'm going to turn the floor over to our first presenter, who's Dr. Nicholas Wright. Dr. Nicholas Wright is an affiliated scholar at Georgetown University, a consultant at Intelligent Biology, an honorary research associate at the University College London, and cybersecurity fellow at New America. And he has uh, conducted plenty of work for the UK government and the US Department of Defense. His work combines neuroscientific, behavioral, and technolo technological insights to understand decision-making decision in politics and international confrontations in ways practically applicable to policy. So Nick, I'll turn the floor over to you now. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nicole. So, it's a great pleasure to have uh, such a fantastic group of speakers here uh, to address a, you know, a really critical issue um, for the next uh, uh, few years. Uh, how does China, uh, how do key uh, parts of the Chinese uh, government uh, and military establishment uh, think about space? Uh, and the reason why this is so important now is because the strategic environment in space is changing. Uh, this isn't uh, the same strategic environment uh, in space that we had during the Cold War, uh, and it isn't the same strategic environment in space uh, that we had in the US unipolar moment from the end of the Cold War until uh, you know four or five years ago. This is a new strategic environment, uh, and in that strategic environment there is no uh, actor uh, that is more important for the U.S. to understand than uh, China, uh, by virtue of its uh, significant capabilities in space and also uh, by virtue of its uh, uh, significant ambitions in space. Uh, that doesn't mean there has to be a confrontational conflict, uh, but that's something that isn't going to happen. We're not going to be able to manage potential escalation without thinking through uh, the challenges we face. So with that in mind, uh, as I said, it's a great pleasure to have really a lot of the key thinkers in the United States who have been thinking about space and China and escalation, having them all in one place and all thinking about this important topic. And the key question uh, for our white paper and that's guided this panel discussion is how can U.S. Uh, policymakers and decision makers put themselves in the shoes of Chinese planners and manage escalation in the current strategic environment in space. So that's our key question. And just to illustrate how important that is, I'll go to slide two. 
Uh, you can see a picture of a, uh, an elderly British gentleman. I'm British, obviously. Uh, you'll probably guess my accent. An elderly British gentleman in a caravan. This is a Field Marshal Montgomery, who commanded the 8th Army in, uh, British 8th Army in the Second World War in North Africa. And he had to face uh, 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 one of the most brilliant generals of the Second World War, uh, Rommel, the German general, uh, a, a brilliant general. And he, in his caravan during, the, during uh, that period, he always had a photograph of Rommel on the wall because he understood that in order to compete uh, 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 with uh, uh, an adversary or a competitor, you have to understand how they think and uh, put yourself in their shoes. And it's exactly the same thing also if we want to manage escalation and if we want to cooperate, uh, we still have to, a central challenge is to put yourself in the shoes of the other. So if we then go to slide three, I'll just illustrate uh, some reasons why I think we're now in a different strategic environment in space uh, to those that we faced before. So if you look at slide three, so from 1957, from the launch of Sputnik until the end of the Cold War, really uh, that was a Cold War space age characterized by uh, two things, a fierce bipolar uh, rivalry, uh, US and Soviet Union dominated uh, uh, launches, uh, and it was, a, it was a primarily a military rivalry. And the second thing <coughs> was that the Cold War space age, there was uh, 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 a high degree of uh, linkage between the nuclear uh, mission and space. So space and nuclear were deeply, deeply enmeshed. So uh, at the end of the Cold War, obviously the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, and then there was a unipolar space age. And again, we can think about two key characteristics here. The first thing is, is that it was a unipolar space age. Uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, and the US was uh, 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 not challenged militarily by any uh, um, significant rival, particularly in high-end areas like space. And the second key feature of the unipolar space age um, was that, uh, is that is that suddenly you had, uh, following the first Gulf War, uh, the significant use of space in conventional forces. So, you know, people talk about the first Gulf War as the first space war, and uh, the conventional uh, uh, dimension became critical. And it's important to mention here that the Soviet Union uh, uh, wanted to do these things. They actually... Uh, uh, developed a lot of the ideas on which the revolution in military affairs uh, was based. That was uh, developed by the Soviet Union, but they just could not do them. That's why they didn't do them. Um, and so now, um, uh, again, uh, the uh, earthly strategic environment has changed, and that is now reflected in a change in the strategic environment in space. And so I would argue that since around 2014, since the invasion of Crimea and, uh, 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 by Russia and also um, the change in the trajectory of Chinese uh, domestic and uh, foreign policy over the last six, seven years under Xi Jinping, we now have a new space age. And again, we can think of two key characteristics. The first is that uh, this is now characterized by gray zone conflict, so earthly gray zone conflict. is more than normal competition. Uh, uh, between states, but less than is traditionally thought of as war. Uh, and secondly, uh, it's entangled. Uh, and so entanglement here means um, that there will be uh, entanglement of nuclear and conventional missions, and also entanglement of military uh, uh, civilian uh, aspects of uh, space. Um, uh, and uh, in fact, uh, Dean Cheng will be uh, uh, specifically uh, discussing some interesting new work he's been doing on uh, civilian military entanglement uh, uh, in China.
So if we go to the next slide, which is slide four, this is briefly to describe grey zone conflict. Um, so as you see at the top, uh, grey zone conflict sits between peace and war. Uh, and I think, you know, we don't need to go through this in too much detail now, but just to say that the key thing to, rem to remember about grey zone conflict is that it's necessarily limited conflict. Uh, it's not war. It's necessarily limited conflict, and thus the central aim is to influence the decision-making of adversaries and other key audiences. And so success requires policymakers to understand and wield influence in space. Uh, it's also uh, well known uh, in the unclassified public domain that, for example, China and Russia have been involved in a variety of what could be construed as grey zone space activities, for example, uh, using cyber and other uh, means uh, to, uh, and dazzling and jamming and so on. Uh, uh, to exert influence in space. And um, we can think about some of the complexities of the grey zone, uh, which I described as the five multiples of the grey zone, uh, uh, and we can talk about those a bit later uh, uh, as the uh, presentation progresses. If we move to slide five, I'm just going to briefly uh, uh, now situate so there's a little bit of background on escalation and thinking on escalation in space uh, in the US and thinking on escalation uh, in space in China. So um, uh, we have four quadrants here. So uh, on the left side, you've got US thinking on escalation. On the right side, Chinese thinking on escalation. And you first need to situate uh, thinking uh, about escalation in space as so just general thinking on escalation in each, uh, in each um, uh, country. US thinking on escalation often we'll think about deliberate escalation, inadvertent escalation, or accidental escalation. And there is a reasonable uh, degree of consensus among scholars of Chinese thinking on escalation that the Chinese think uh, uh, much more in terms of deliberate escalation. Moreover, if we then go to the bottom left-hand corner, there's a wide variety of factors that have been discussed as important for escalation, particularly in space, as a particular <coughs> these factors. And uh, Bruce McDonald, uh, who will be speaking next, is going to cover a number of those um, key factors on escalation uh, in space. And the bottom right-hand corner, we then also think about Chinese thinking on escalation and space. So they don't necessarily think about escalation in space in the same way that that US scholars do. And so Dean Cheng, who will be speaking uh, uh, a little bit later, uh, will be thinking in particular, or one of the aspects we'll be discussing is uh, Chinese thinking on escalation and space. So if we just go now to slide uh, six, so this is the uh, uh, last slide I'll speak to. These are just some bottom lines from the report. So first of all, managing space operations in the new epoch in space, the grey zone entangled space age, is not the same as the Cold War or the unipolar space age. Secondly, managing escalation in space operations is not the same as in other domains. Uh, and thirdly, Chinese strategic thinking on space escalation and space escalation differs from US thinking. So now I'm going to... Uh, uh, hand over to Bruce, but before I do that, I'm going to say to all the speakers, just reiterate, uh, we need to keep the time, and um, uh, 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 we're very lucky to have such a great group of speakers. I will give very brief uh, uh, bios to each of them. Bruce has a long history in uh, thinking about space, uh, escalation, and um, uh, and China. Uh, he's at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and there is nobody I would rather have talking to me about space than Bruce. Uh, on these issues. So uh, over to you, Bruce. Very kind. Thank you so much. Um, it's really, it's a great privilege to be here. Um, I wanted to go over just a few general things uh, and stay within time limits. 
I think it's important in thinking about space that we recognize that uh, that the infra- it really it, it comes down to information, with the exception of some upcoming space tourism and some lovely pictures from NASA. What space is really all about is information. It's about information either generated in space by sensor satellites or information that, that is transmitted through space via communications and other satellites. It's the information that space assets provide that makes it so important. It's easy to get caught up in the assets themselves, but really there are means to um, leadership, both military and civilian, to obtain information to make more um, uh, better and uh, more appropriate decisions. It's the lifeblood of today's uh, uh, military forces. Um, we have to, other countries with lesser commitments are not as dependent as the United States is on communication. We have worldwide commitments, so communications and being in touch is more important for us than probably any other country in the world. As a friend of mine put it some years ago, if we lost, if we had a serious loss of our space asset effectiveness, we would turn the U.S. military from an information age fighting force to an industrial age one, uh, with nowhere near the effectiveness that it has today. So obviously, this makes uh, space uh, and space assets as a means for obtaining or transmitting this information a very appealing uh, target for our adversaries. And uh, one of the things that uh, I think it's, it becomes almost uh, difficult to distinguish between space and cyber, because cyber weapons have the same kind of global reach, but generally speaking, they're a lot cheaper and so more available to um, uh, adversaries that might not otherwise be able to afford a very large uh, uh, or effective space force. This is not so much a peacetime problem, although there certainly creates uh, a number of, uh, of more minor problems during peacetime, but in a crisis, there could be great incentives for an adversary to strike first, not second. And that is almost the textbook definition of instability. Um, our space architecture uh, clearly has vulnerabilities, as China is well aware, and has been working on that for quite some time. It's important not to overemphasize this problem. We can worry, sell, worry ourselves into, uh, into a frenzy. But neither can we be complacent, and fortunately we haven't been. But if your alternatives in a crisis are to strike first, with intact forces or strike second, i.e. retaliate with surviving forces, it's better to strike first clearly if you believe that conflict is inevitable. China's PLA has written about this and understands the opportunities and the pitfalls. And China has developed uh, offensive space capabilities, as we well know, that cannot be ignored and must be addressed, but need to be addressed in a a cool cool, um, uh, uh, and calm uh, manner. Uh, I'm speaking right now on, on from slide nine. Um, satellite and other jamming has been part of conflict for years, uh, and so th- at that level, uh, I, did see, I don't see a lot of escalation potential normally. But there will be a temptation to escalate gradually if you begin to achieve certain effects that you were looking for. After all, uh, uh, if you're successful at something, you want to tend to do it again. And the temptation would be to go a little further. The problem is that there are no obvious red lines, and as well as the fact that uh, these are not surgical instruments that we are talking about, and we can't always anticipate what the uh, what the impact of the use of various uh, measures, offensive measures, would be. Um, there's great uncertainty about weapons effects, especially as we become an ever more interconnected um, 
uh, both society and also our space infrastructures themselves. So it's potentially all too easy to spark rounds of unintended escalation through greater than expected weapons effects. Moving on to the next slide. There are a number of factors in the crisis that are going to affect uh, leadership thinking. And unfortunately, the fog of war is foggier still, I think, out in space. Uh, neither side would likely want to escalate quickly in a crisis if they could avoid it. And I love the work that you've done, Nick, on the gray zone conflict and, and fleshing that out, at least at the beginning anyway. Uh, both the United States and China have a, a tremendously effective uh, economies, and China in particular, although the United States as well, wouldn't want to put that at risk. Many uncertainties are going to confront the leaders of both countries in a crisis. Uncertain effects of offensive actions, unrevealed offensive and defensive weapons, misinterpretation of, of actions and messaging, and then what I just call Murphy's Law and Mother Nature are two of the biggest, uh, biggest threats that we face. Uh, there's a and there's a rapid evolution of space and cyber technology so that what works today, and you may shape a force uh, based on that, uh, the technological landscape may look totally different five or ten years down the road. So that, that it, we are beset by uncertainty. There's always going to be incentives to escalate at least a little more. After all, the world didn't fall apart when you escalated maybe a day or two before. But at some point, where are the red lines? It's not obvious. It's important to deter major conflict in space, but minor conflict like jamming and dazzling, that sort of thing is likely inevitable. But the urge to escalate beyond that must, by our, by our adversaries, must be deterred and resisted. The uh, best way to deter, in theory, would be to take away any incentive to attack by minimizing the vulnerability of U.S. space capabilities. Unfortunately, that's received a lot more attention recent than, in, than in past years. Minimizing vulnerability will be an ongoing struggle, of course, and we should expect adversary countermeasures to whatever it is that we do to try to overcome, uh, to overcome what we do. Uh, signaling in a crisis will play an important role, but it's fraught with pitfalls. How do we ensure that the signal we send will be the same one as the signal that our adversaries receive? That's going to be a continuing struggle. <clears throat> Moving on then to... Uh, some key observations on the next slide. The U.S. obviously depends more on space and has more to lose in a space conflict than Russia or China, given U.S. global responsibilities. I believe it's important to deter major conflict in space. Minor conflict, again, will likely be inevitable, but the urge to escalate must, must be resisted. At least initially, China would likely, in the, in the spirit of the gray zone conflict, adopt a South China Sea type of escalation strategy if they could get away with it. And they'd prefer to achieve their objectives at the lowest possible risk. The best way to deter is to take away the incentives to attack by minimizing vulnerability. That if they are denied a reasonable opportunity to achieve their goals, they're going to be a lot more, it's going to feed already existing caution about, uh, about uh, uh, attacking. Um, minimizing vulnerability will be an ongoing struggle, and we should expect countermeasures to counter what we do. It'll be like the old anti-submarine warfare game in spades. Uh, signaling in the crisis is going to play a very important role, but we, um, we have to make sure that the signals they receive are the signals that we intend for them to receive. And one problem that is uh, an ongoing concern 
is what I call the sorcerer's apprentice problem. That the space and cyber domains are so new and leaders are so called upon to spend time on, on other problems that they're going to be unfamiliar with space and cyber conflict issues and their background political environment for them. And we need to recognize that somehow it gets senior leaders to participate more in exercises or take steps to address that problem. So what should we do? Just a, a few general points on the last, uh, on the last slide. Uh, put a priority emphasis on developing a resilient and survivable U.S. space architecture with backups as appropriate and develop intelligent non-debris producing offensive space capabilities primarily for deterrence purposes. And develop measures to better exploit uncertainty, which is going to make uh, both sides uh, risk-averse to begin with, and, and to try to maintain and to, uh, there's going to be uh, uh, maintain space stability by playing to that to the fact that a risk aversion is going to be present on both sides. We want to strengthen the taboo on attacking nuclear force supporting assets. Uh, devise measures addressing uh, the Chinese South China Sea type of incremental steps, and uh, encourage greater uh, U.S. Chinese dialogue and diplomacy on space, and pursue realistic agreements that address joint concerns. Not that we're going to solve our problems through dialogue, but at least it might uh, reduce the chances for misunderstanding and provide uh, communications channels uh, should a crisis uh, uh, develop. Also, one thing that I've harped on for years, and we're starting to see more of this, is do more extensive crisis gaming. Don't just do war games, but crisis gaming to better understand space crisis dynamics. And with that, I will uh, turn the floor back over to Nick. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bruce. So uh, next uh, to speak will be uh, Dean Cheng, who is uh, a senior uh, research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, and really, he has done uh, much of the best work uh, reading and synthesizing a wide variety of Chinese language sources uh, thinking about space uh, and cyber. And so it's a great pleasure that I uh, turn over the floor to Dean. Thank you very much. Uh, given the limited time, uh, I just have one disclaimer. I happen to be on the user's advisory group to the National Space Council. These comments do not reflect the views of the National Space Council, the United States government, or frankly anyone with any sense of responsibility whatsoever. <laughs> um, so my comments today are going to look very quickly at Chinese views of space operations and escalation. If there is one thing I can have you folks take away from this, it is the idea that China thinks about these issues fundamentally differently. Um, we and the Chinese basically have very different views of the entire concept of deterrence, which has implications for escalation. We also have very different contexts of just looking at the world. If you look at uh, Dr. Wright's slide number three, the very nice timeline, I would suggest that China's timeline, which begins in 1957 as well, would be marked by very different dates. 1960, the Sino-Soviet split. 1986, the creation of Plan 863, which has guided Chinese high-tech development, including space. 1990-91, the first Gulf War. 1999, the Cox Commission report. Um, and therefore, the shades along that timeline would be very different, marked by very different events and contexts. When we look at the issue of uh, deterrence and escalation, 
Western concepts of deterrence are fundamentally focused on dissuasion. And when we look at the major writers on deterrence in the West, Bernard Brody, Thomas Schelling, they specifically reject the idea of coercion as being part of the deterrent calculus. The Chinese concept of deterrence, the Chinese term wei se, which is translated as deterrence, is more accurately translated as compellence because it incorporates both coercion and dissuasion. Similarly, and we saw this um, in Bruce's presentation, we have a fo we tend to focus on issues of space deterrence as deterring activity in space. When the Chinese talk about space deterrence, they are talking about the use of space activities to coerce or to dissuade or to compel in the context of terrestrial political issues. So it is not deterring activity in space, but using space activities to effect a political goal such as reclaiming Taiwan, controlling the South China Sea, etc. This extends further. The U.S., especially with regards to China, is largely engaged in extended deterrence. We in China don't tend to directly confront each other, but we have a number of allies, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, a special relationship with Taiwan, um, where we are expected to provide support. China is engaged in basic deterrence, deterring adversary efforts to jeopardize what they consider core interests. First and foremost, territorial integrity and sovereignty. Taiwan is part of China. The Senkakus, or Diaoyutai, are part of China. The South China Sea is part of China. They, these are not land grabs. These are defending, in their view, Chinese territory and claims. They are defending their economic system. They are defending, above all, the control of the party. Activities in space, as well as the maritime, air, land, and information domains are about achieving those core interests, not about preventing activity in space or in cyber. Within this context, and specifically on space operations, the Chinese have written extensively about the types of space activities that they foresee. Space deterrence and space blockade are most relevant here. Um, folks who are interested in other, uh, the other aspects, um, feel free to contact me separately. Space deterrence has consistently been a vital part of Chinese military space thinking, dating back at least to the 1990s, and again, not deterring activity in space, but how to operate in space to achieve broader deterrence goals. Um, there is a ladder of deterrence activities, which looks a lot like what we would conceive of as an escalation ladder. It begins with the display of forces and weapons. Let me note here, this is drawn from Chinese material that dates back to at least 2005. The Chinese ASAT test, of course, was in 2007. So either the Chinese have perfected time travel, in which case we should all just pack it in. Um, I, for one, will welcome our new Chinese overlords. Um, or two, we need to recognize that the ASAT test, far from some kind of rogue activity by rogue elements of the PLA, in defiance of presumably non-rogue elements of the Chinese government, was in fact part of the Chinese deterrence slash escalation ladder. The exercise of military space forces is the second rung. Let me note here, this includes 
Chinese reference to the Schriever war games, U.S. war games. So they see us as attempting to coerce them. Space force deployments, both altering forces in orbit as well as deployment of additional forces. And finally, what the Chinese term space shock and awe strikes. Unless you think that they are copying us, the Chinese term for shock and awe, uh, uh, actually dates back to the Tang Dynasty. So, um, Separate from this is space blockade operations. These include blockading terrestrial facilities, access to space launch facilities, blocking people from getting in, blockading orbits, generating debris, deployment of space mines. Let me note, all of this material, all of these comments and references are based upon Chinese military textbooks and teaching materials. Blockading launch windows, and finally, information blockades, including cyber, interfering with satellite data, as well as tracking telemetry and control data. Uh, all of these aspects here are seen as part, space blockades are separate from space deterrence, but the two are obviously related. To this end, at the end of 2015, the Chinese established a PLA strategic support force. This, unlike the Russian aerospace forces, brought together China's cyber warfare capabilities, which they term network warfare because it's more than cyber, their electronic warfare capabilities because the Chinese practice integrated network and electronic warfare, as well as their space forces because it, to the Chinese, it's not about space. It is about information, about the ability to establish what they term information dominance, the ability to access, obtain, analyze and exploit information faster and more accurately than your adversary in preventing them from doing the same. Within this context, then, the PLASSF should be thought of as China's information warfare force. By the way, it also includes, interestingly, a political warfare element responsible for things like the three warfares, legal warfare, public opinion warfare, and psychological warfare. A very interesting and important aspect of gray zone warfare, but we don't have time to go into that right now. Uh, just very quickly, China does have a uh, roadmap for commercial space development. Um, this includes uh, state-owned enterprises, research institutions, quasi-genuinely commercial entities. Let me note here, one of the most well-known Chinese space companies, One Space, was created with state-owned enterprise money, and the president is uh, simultaneously a vice president of a Chinese state-owned enterprise. So um, apparently uh, moonlighting is acceptable. Uh, the most important element here, however, is that the Chinese, the fourth element is internet company-funded space development. Basically, the Chinese seem to be saying that since it's all about information, imagine if you had gone to Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and everyone, all of the information moguls, Elon Musk, and said, what would a space program dedicated to your needs look like? When we look at this, coupled with Chinese, what we know and the Chinese have openly published about mobilization activities relating to science and technology, including space mobilization, we see a whole-of-society effort. The Chinese term for this is Jingmingrongha, civil military melded or fused. And what we need to recognize is two things. One, that the Chinese space capabilities extend far beyond those of the PLASSF to include the broader civilian and commercial uh, space assets, resources, personnel, equipment, and facilities. And second of all, that the Chinese are working towards developing a space capability that likely will not look like what we have developed and, frankly, what other countries have developed. Um, and with that, I think we hit 10 minutes. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dean. So, uh,
Next uh, to speak will be uh, Dr. Amrata Goswami, uh, who has a provocative contribution arguing that China has three long-term goals in space, uh, and uh, she will go on to describe their strategy for achieving those goals. Uh, uh, Dr. Goswami is an independent researcher uh, who has previously received funding, for example, from the uh, Minerva uh, um, uh, grant from the US Department of Defense, uh, and worked uh, for a number of years at India's Ministry of Defense sponsored think tank, the Institute for Defense Studies uh, and Analyses. So over to you, uh, Namarata. Thank you, Nick, and it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm very much privileged to be a part of this conversation. And uh, taking off from everyone else's presentation, I bring a bit the Asian perspective, too, in terms of how Asia, for instance, countries like India or Japan, view China's space uh, capability and strategy. So as Nick was mentioning, I argue that if you look at China, I'm on slide 26 now. So what I'm looking at in terms of China's behavior and conversations and discourses that they are putting out in their media, in their, in their policy, uh, you know, white papers, there are basically three goals. One is that they are looking at space, as Peter was mentioning, from a very long-term perspective. So it's, of course, about military advantage in terms of building asymmetric capability, but it's also about building a discourse that looks at space in the next 10, 20 years. And if you look at the discourses coming out from their space scientists and, and space policymakers, and I had interviewed them when I was in Beijing as part of the Minerva Grant uh, last year, what I, what I observed is that it was not just about um, building military capability, but also about uh, talking about asteroid mining looking at long-term space-based resources. And what is exciting, actually, from an Asian perspective, looking at China's behavior, is that they're encouraging others to think of space from a very different strategic viewpoint, away from the Cold War, who gets where first, to actually building more permanent presence. And if you look at their experiments, for instance, done in Beihang University about on a lunar, uh, very similar to a lunar capsule that they basically replicated on Earth, and had their students live there for about 360 days. And that kind of actually scientific-based exploration programs is also impacting the discourse of space. The second uh, goal that I view what China is doing in space is not just about looking at space in terms of building their military capability on Earth, but also space as a diplomatic tool. So basically looking at space, offering their Baidu navigation system, for example, to countries along the One Belt, One Road. And this is very important because what happens is that because of this kind of leadership in terms of envisioning space as, for instance, from a global common perspective, you have countries, other countries, for instance, like India, who's trying to catch up and offer a similar kind of discourse. The third point I want to make is that if you look at their activities in terms of, for instance, the 2007 ACET technology that they basically showed the world that they have the capability to do that and to bring about a kind of vulnerability to U.S. assets in space. So number one, basically, the argument that I heard in Beijing was that we can, never be, we can never beat the U.S. in a conventional war, but what we could do is probably bring about vulnerability, as the first speaker was mentioning, because the U.S. military is so much dependent on space assets. So if we could show the world that we can actually target such, a, such an asset, that would bring about a lot of concern and some measure of, uh, you know, not to basically escalate the conflict. So that was number four. And number, number, number four, sorry, is that what I find fascinating is that what China is doing in terms of its space discourse is not just about arguing for 
uh, a scenario where they are the leaders and which they hope to build their space technology by 2045, but also to build legitimacy. And I think this is missing in the discourses I hear in the U.S. It's mostly about uh, conflict, but it's also about building legitimacy in terms of their space presence. And this is interesting to me, if you go to the next slide, is that what happened at slide 27 is that when you want to build legitimacy, how do you do it? So basically, if you look at how did they build legitimacy for their presence in the South China Sea Islands, for instance, an area of conflict I've studied extensively that is China-Bhutan and China-India border areas, it's to establish a rationale for presence, and then basically to slowly develop economic activities, and then basically back that by a historical first presence narrative. And as Dean was mentioning, I think if you look at the Chinese discourse, it's very serious about arguing that these areas that they have claimed are actually their areas historically. And the interesting thing is then they build legitimacy by putting out that discourse. So I kind of view a similar kind of discourse that is happening in space as well, and also basically building their space technology and then building in the legitimacy. And, and I see that because if you look at this year's China's uh, cooperation with the United Nations Outer Space Affairs Office, they actually offered their space station for international collaboration with other nations. And that's the kind of stakeholder building uh, process. The next slide, please. So in terms of initiative and outlook, um, the concerns that I have from this discourse are two. One is that uh, we, when we talk about a dialogue with China or when we talk about a kind of agreement with China, if you look at the border agreements that China has signed in, 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 on Earth, for instance, with India or with Bhutan, most of those agreements actually commit to de-escalation of the conflict. And so uh, if you look at the 2005 India-China border agreement or the Bhutan-China agreement 2013, you would see that China has committed to not doing any activity that leads to escalation in conflict. And what happens then, uh, the countries that sign that particular agreement actually believe that that's going to be the case. But then the interesting thing is, contrary to those commitments, you see that there is an escalation of conflict. For instance, China's, the PLA engineers trying to build a road in Bhutan last year, and then turning around and telling Bhutan that, I'm sorry, this was disputed area, this was not included in the particular agreement. And Bhutan completely blindsided because the agreement actually dealt with disputed areas. And I think that's the kind of scenario we need to think about in terms of space as well. Now, in terms of responding to uh, one of the interesting points I hear here, that, you know, that PLA is basically a military function of the CPC and does not have that kind of collaboration. It does have a differentiation of civilian and military. But I look, if I look at President Xi Jinping's speech to the Strategic Support Force in 2015, and it's available online as well, uh, and so if you look at that, of course, it talks about innovation, technology, the building together of cyber space for basically for purposes of information. But what is fascinating to me in terms of its strategic building, in terms of a strategic support force, is that presidency is very clear that the strategic support force is a force that is basically there to enhance the legitimacy and the capability of the Communist Party of China. So in that context, when I look at their space goals and their desire for space presence and their desire for building legitimacy, and then building up their military support structure to support that kind of goal, my concern is that what would that kind of a world look like for other Asian nations? Would it, would it be that, for instance, in the One Belt, One Road initiative, China has established dispute settlement mechanisms on its own, which is under its uh, Supreme People's Court, 
There are two of them that have been established. And so will we see a similar kind of behavior when it comes to dispute, for instance, when space becomes much more accessible in the long term? And, and in terms of gray zone conflict, coming to uh, build up my presentation in terms of why I, I'm concerned about it, for instance, if you look at their South China Sea, uh, one of the ways that China actually questions other nations' presence, and this is slide 29, is to actually use fishermen militia. There are about 21 million fishermen militia and about 439,000 motor boats. And these fishermen are basically then uh, questioning the presence of any other state military presence or patrolling in the, in the disputed areas. And then when Chinese foreign ministry officials or, or government officers are asked about it, their basic argument is that these are nationalistic uh, fishermen. We have no control over them. And so, and this is very similar to the kind of behavior I see in the other border areas, for instance, China and India, when question about the escalation of the conflict crossing the line of actual control, the higher level uh, CPC members or at the level of the prime minister or president, would, premier or president would argue that these are very low level uh, PLA officers and they did this on their own. And so the deniability and which basically leads to what uh, Nick was uh, mentioning, a, a gray zone uh, kind of conflict. And that is something I worry about in terms of their, uh, their space uh, infrastructure as well. And finally, before I end, I would argue that if I look at China's uh, strategy in space in terms of their long-term ambition, and, and this is, again, building up legitimacy, building up discourse, and this, is actually, this basically gets missed if I look at it from the U.S. perspective and in the, in the conversations here, is that China actually is building serious capacity. And I'm in slide 31 now. I'm skipping the uh, slide 30 due to lack of time. So if you look at China's ambition to colonize space, look at the discourse that they are generating. And, and, and what I find fascinating is that the discourse is not aimed at the U.S. or aimed at India or aimed at Japan alone, which we tend to think. Any conversation coming out of China that sounds provocative, for instance, if you look at Ye Peijing's head of China's lunar mission statement, he says that the universe is an ocean, the moon is the Dayu Island, Mars is Yongan Island. If we don't go there now, even though we are capable of doing so, then we'll be blamed by our descendants. Now, the conversation and the response to this kind of discourse in the U.S. was that this is a dog whistle. This is basically provoking uh, countries like the U.S. to then say, oh, my God, they're going to become like the South China Sea. But then I think there is also an internal audience that the Chinese Communist Party is very concerned about. And there are these great discourses uh, of China's uh, capability in the long term to become the leader in space, to invest in space technology, to build up military capacity to sustain that. So uh, it's not always about the U.S. or it's not always about India. It's also about their societal uh, pressure to become a lead actor in space. And I think the Chinese Communist Party basically also responds to that kind of demand if you look at their internet conversations. And finally, before I end, just a few slides. If, you, if, you, if it's in front of you, you can see it in terms of what President Xi Jinping is talking about in terms of the strategic support force. And so uh, based on that discourse that I have given you, and it's not always about military conflict, it's not always about escalation ladder, it's also about building legitimacy, which is very important in terms of their space discourse, long-term ambition and funding. And so if you look at his uh, speech to the PLA SSF, he argues that it's a new type of combat force to maintain national security and an important growth point 
of the PLS combat capabilities, and he actually presented and fleshed it out in the 19th Party Congress. And I'll finally end by saying that if you look at their safe discourse and their safe ambition, the one thing that comes out very clearly is that it's about military capability, it's about building a smart, lean force, it's about responding to their fear that the United States has so much of space assets that they are vulnerable, and so to basically question that strength by an ACET test or a satellite with a robotic arm that can grab a satellite, which they also demonstrated in 2013. But it's also about diplomacy. It's also about showcasing to countries in the Asia-Pacific and the One Belt, One Road Initiative that China has the money, the funding, and is willing to actually establish alternate institutions that can then establish, establish it as a legitimate leader in space. So I'll end there, Nick, and thank you. Thank you very much, Nimrata. So the final speaker uh, 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 will also be thinking about longer-term perspectives. So it's, it's critical not just to think about short-term perspectives or thinking about something right now, but longer-term perspectives. And uh, there's no better person to uh, talk about uh, a key aspect of long-term perspectives, which is the development uh, of norms, uh, norms and rules and, uh, and so on uh, in space. So Dr. Brian Whedon is the Director of Pro, uh, Program Planning for the Secure World Foundation uh, here in Washington, D.C. Um, has a PhD from George Washington University in the field of science and technology policy, and before that uh, was uh, uh, in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, so, Brian, over to you. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, so, the, what I was asked to do for this was to look at sort of the, the other aspects um, of a U.S. approach to dealing with some of these challenges, uh, specifically things that are outside of the, the pure military domain. And, and I echoed some of the themes that I had, and actually I think it was the first one of these SMA speaker sessions almost two years ago where I talked about um, a study we'd done for offset assessment on a diplomatic, economic, and, uh, and commercial uh, aspects of the strategy, US, uh, strategy for space. And so some of the things we'll talk about today sort of echo some of that, that same thing. Um, so norms of behavior is a, a very interesting topic because it often is used by to mean different things by different people. Uh, the, the term is sort of nebulous, um, but in general, we're talking about our you know ways to uh, patterns of behavior uh, that are generally accepted by society or, or, or by culture. Um, and the importance there is we see in other domains. Uh, maritime domain, uh, cyber domain, land and air, where there are formal rules about how things are conducted. There's formal international law and things, but then there's much more informal rules, uh, things that have evolved over time of how we use those domains uh, that influence behavior. And, and those, over time, those behaviors can become norms. Uh, and then what's really interesting about that from an asteroid standpoint is those norms can help primarily to discriminate between normal and abnormal behavior, which can be a useful tool for the security context for uh, being able to discriminate between legitimate, uh, you know, commercial traffic or non-harmful traffic and things that are actually abnormal that are potential threats. Uh, and the, the classic case there is, you know, for example, in the, the Persian Gulf and the Straits of Hormuz, there's an absolutely huge volume of, of commercial shipping going through there. Uh, and the U.S. Navy has to be able to discriminate between what is legitimate commercial activity, what is things like piracy or things or other things to worry about, and potential actual military threats. 
Um, so, so that is one of the important values of norms of behavior. Uh, in space, you know, that has actually lagged a bit. Uh, we have some. Of the, we have the formal treaties that outline principles uh, for how states conduct themselves in space. But in many cases, those principles there's not a lot of uh, what we would say implementation of those through other agreements or through formal legal agreements. Um, and there's actually not a lot of agreement on what would constitute uh, a normal behavior. Uh, over the last decade, there have been three major multilateral initiatives to try and establish uh, norms of behavior in different ways. Um, they would be the uh, European Union-led International Code of Conduct, the uh, United Nations Group of Governmental Experts on Transparency and Confidence Measures, and the uh, UN Committee on Peace of Outer Space Working Group on Long-Term Sustainability of Outer Space. The results of those three, I would say, are generally mixed. Uh, in terms of the Code of Conduct, the EU itself was able to agree to a set of voluntary guidelines for behaving in space, but then it was moved into a broader international discussion, ran into many uh, process challenges, uh, and at the moment I think the best context is it's mostly dead. Right? It, there's not a lot of support for it going forward and there's no real actions on it. Um, the Group of Government Lectures and TCBNs was the first time that the U.S., China, and Russia all agreed on a U.N. space security resolution, but it was a set of voluntary recommendations that went to the U.N. General Assembly, and there really has not been a lot of action since then to formally implement them in any sort of follow-on agreements. Uh, the U.N. COPUS Long-Term Sustainability Guidelines uh, ran for eight years and was probably, I would say, the most successful in that it produced uh, consensus among 87 countries on 21 guidelines uh, for space sustainability that covered everything from debris mitigation to space situation awareness uh, to national law and policy. Um, but it definitely ran into some challenges. Uh, over the last few years, uh, the Russians played, I would say, a, a disruptive force in those uh, activities after Ukraine, um, and in the end, uh, blocked any kind of final wrap-up resolution that put any kind of a nice bow on the whole activities. Um, through the whole thing, the, the copious activities also generally uh, set aside the really tough dual-use issues to deal with things like deliberate destruction of satellites, uh, rendezvous and proximity operations, uh, debris removal, uh, cyber attacks, because it was mainly focused on the, the peaceful civil activities. Um, so the question then becomes, what is it that we're going to look at as the next tool? Um, you know, I asked in the, the, my, my previous discussion two years ago sort of the question, what is the U.S. for when it comes to norms of behavior and, and strengthening space governance? Uh, we played a leadership role in the 50s and 60s uh, in the broader discussions that led to the current international framework on space, and we were able to enshrine some of our core principles and things that were important to our national interests in those agreements. Um, since then, over the last 10 years, those three agreements I mentioned were generally not led by the U.S. We played a, a supporting or contributing role. Um, and there's, you know, various debates of whether that led to them being successful or not. Um, in the China context, I would say in those three agreements, uh, China was a, a, I would say, a, probably a cautious contributor is the way I would phrase it. Uh, they were certainly not as disruptive 
um, as the Russians were in the LTS towards the end. Uh, China actually played a, 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 a role in helping bring the rest of the BRICS in line with supporting the, the agreement, uh, as opposed to the Russians who are trying to pull entities to their side and try and block it. Um, but China clearly was looking for something that was more legally binding uh, in the UN context and not more voluntary, uh, and, and, and and was not entire. And I would say that those agreements were not entirely in line with what they were hoping to achieve. Um, so going forward, I would say there are three big areas where we probably should be focusing our thoughts on what are the things the U.S. is going to be pushing for in terms of agreements or discussions to start establishing norms of behavior. Uh, the first is rendezvous and proximity operations in space, uh, and that includes both uh, military as well as commercial and civil. Uh, this is a category that with the development of commercial satellite servicing and other activities uh, is going to uh, greatly increase in the near future. Uh, and there's going to be a lot more activities in space that are going to be challenging to try and decode what is normal commercial activity, what is a potential threat, uh, what is somebody that, that's, that's, that's behaving abnormally. Um, the second, I would say, is general military-to-military -military interactions in space. That includes military rendezvous and prox ops, but also broader military activities. Uh, and here the question is, you know, do we look to something like an incident at sea agreement where we uh, just talk with Russia and or China about ways to uh, codify how our militaries will interact in space to try and cut down on misperceptions um, and accidents that could lead to escalation? Uh, and the third, I would say, is, is uh, research and design and testing of counterspace weapons. Um, I think the prospects for a total ban on any kind of testing whatsoever is very slim, uh, particularly given the link to not only counter space but also uh, missile defense. So the question becomes, are there ways we should discuss norms of how you do those in a responsible manner, uh, including the generation of debris-causing uh, events um, and any kind of notifications? Um, I'll say, finally, you know, it's an open question uh, as to whether the U.S. is going to play a leadership role in here. Um, on, on security issues over the last decade or so, Russia and China have absolutely controlled the international debate. Uh, if you go to the various forums, whether it's in the U.N., the Congress on Disarmament, or elsewhere, uh, Russia and China are heavily pushing their draft treaty on the prevention of the place of weapons in outer space. More recently, the issue of no first place in weapons in outer space. Um, those are the main things being discussed because those are the only things on the table. Uh, the U.S. position for the last decade or so has been those are very flawed ideas, but there really has not been an alternative proposal being brought forward. Uh, what we've seen most recently is there's a new group of governmental experts that had just been formed in the last several months that is discussing uh, ways to prevent an arms race in outer space. Uh, and at the very first preparatory meeting for that, which the U.S. did not participate in, the main thing, by the way, was hosted in Beijing, uh, the main things that were being pushed to be talked about on the agenda were the PPWT and no first placement. Uh, what was interesting was that the response from all the countries there was that those were interesting ideas, but they were clearly looking for something else, and they were not entirely supportive. Uh, which is a signal that there are potentially room for other ideas that come into the discussion uh, that are not quite what, what Russia and China are pushing. Um, thankfully, the U.S. is actually participating in the GGE, uh, and so the question is, you know, will they be able to provide, will the U.S. be able to provide uh, positive contributions that will shift that discussion away from just the PPWT to other things? Um, so. 
I will close there just with a, a reminder that as we think about these problems, uh, you know, as Nick put it, you know, this is a gray, gray zone conflict. It is not all about the military and overt force. It is about influence and it is about influencing decision makers, both in the adversaries, but also other key audiences. Uh, and so that I think that these types of, uh, of diplomatic uh, and, and, and non other non-military initiatives uh, need to be thought about in a way that supports the U.S. military objectives and overall uh, objectives in this conflict. So that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. So um, a huge range of talks, uh, and it will be fantastic to get some questions. So, um, and Nicole, can you open up the questions, please? Yeah, of course. So thank you, everyone, for presenting. And I'm going to open up the conference line now for our Q&A portion of the telecon. If you're asking a question, please make sure to state your name and your organization. And if you're not asking a question, please make sure that your phone is on mute. And also make sure that you don't put the conference line on hold as the hold music will disrupt the Q&A. The conference is now in talk mode. All right. Do we have any questions? Yeah, this is uh, Chuck Gaylord from US Stratcom J3. Uh, so, could the speaker speak briefly on the, uh, the benefits room. and detriments from establishing some I, I clearly defined red lines in space? <laughs> well, I'll take a stab. Uh, this is. Um, I think it would be most useful if we could define extremes uh, as to what is. Um, this is I'm Bruce McDonald uh, speaking. Uh, I think, as I mentioned in my remarks, I think that interfering with clearly strategic nuclear-oriented um, uh, assets uh, of more than passing interest, I think, to Stratcom uh, uh, would certainly constitute one. But I think we also need to respect that. Uh, on uh, for uh, uh, Chinese uh, assets too, to the extent that uh, that they are there. Um, as you begin going down the uh, the line from that, it becomes a little harder to uh, uh, describe. Uh, for example, I would say that uh, while uh, GPS is very important, uh, I might put uh, GPS or at least a small number of GPS satellites uh, 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 not as a, as a red line. Uh, obviously, something uh, harmful but not as, as a red line. Uh, you know, th this is open to interpretation, and of course, where uh, our, our friends in the, in the services, uh, such as yourself, uh, that would have cast a very deciding vote, at least in terms of how we, if we were to formulate a position. Um, uh, certainly, intelligence satellites, uh, high-value intelligence satellites might well fall pretty close to that, to that red line. But I think talking about, about red line, just having a dialogue on that, uh, would not hurt, even though I don't know that we, the Chinese and, and us, would uh, uh, would agree. Uh, the last uh, discussion I took part in, they said, well, you look at something like your cyber satellite, you use that for very tactical purposes. And that's a valid point. And we say, yes, but we also use it for nuclear. And uh, so I don't know that we'd have a meeting of the minds there, but uh, I'm open to thoughts that, uh, that you might have. Oh, this is Dean Chang. Um, so two points here. One, um, for a lot of countries, their space situational awareness capabilities are intimately tied to NC3. And this creates some very interesting problems about if you're going to say NC3 is off limits, are you prepared to give the other side free reign over space situational awareness? The other aspect, and this is a broader strategic philosophical issue, is the brighter the red line, the grayer the gray zone. Because the question then becomes, 
are you really going to enforce that red line? If I haven't, if I walk up to the red line and put my toes on the edge and lean all the way over, are you going to schwack me? And, you know, this is where what we see, for example, in the South China Sea, where the Chinese build islands. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to actually bomb Fiery Cross or Mischief Reef? Um, if you're not, then what was your red line? Um, and how credible is it? Um, so I, I do have deep reservations about even discussing red lines with um, strategic competitors. I think that's the term for the national security strategy, which is that we tend to give away a lot more than we get. Um, as as uh, Professor Goswami noted, um, you know, the Chinese say, oh, we will de-escalate, and then they don't. We had this with the Xi-Obama agreement about the South China Sea. China won't militarize the South China Sea. I suspect those B-52 crews didn't have much faith in it recently. Um, the Chinese will learn what our red lines are. They will say whatever they want to. At the end of the day, we're the ones who are going to then have to enforce them, and the Chinese will play within that play space. So, so this is Brian. I, I, I think, I mean, yes, I agree that setting red lines are very complicated. The, the other side of that, though, is that if we don't talk about them, then we essentially say everything is sort of on the table. And there are clearly things that the U.S. would see as much more escalatory and disruptive than other actions. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, you know, it's probably a, a, a bridge too far to try and have agreed red lines. Um, but I don't, I don't think making that point clear to strategic competitors about what some of those might be, even if you're a bit ambiguous of what, what the end result might be, I, I don't think that would necessarily be a bad thing, particularly if you're trying to uh, send messaging about what sort of things we definitely would not, would not be happy with happening. Um, but it is, it, is a, it is a tricky conversation to have. Certainly is. Yeah, uh, I have a question. Sorry, Peter, did you want to weigh in on that question? Just very briefly, you know, I think the United States has proven how ineffective it can be in terms of stating red lines. I think particularly with regard to this actor, we'd be in a much better position to demonstrate rather than define that, you know, a parent, and not to put ourselves in a position of being... Uh, superior, but just as by way of example, a parent doesn't need to tell a child, don't put their hand in the cookie jar. Slapping the hand is good enough. And having the ability to do tit-for-tat, to message with action well below, establishes a credibility to, to act and respond that can keep us well shy and keep the other side guessing as far as exactly where we will or won't respond. Thanks, Peter. I tend to give my children a timeout, uh, but uh, it's <laughs> well taken. So I'm only joking. Um, uh, any, any other uh, any other questions? Yes, I have a question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. This is Nick Estimiatis from Penn State. Um, I, I agree, actually, uh, Dean, with your comments about the red line. Drawing a line in the sand doesn't do any good unless you're you know, prepared to do something about it. But more importantly, which I haven't heard, is the issue of attribution, which has largely been a reason that the U.S. has not um, been so engaged in things like codes of conduct. Do any of you have any ideas how 
um, our attribution would have to work, our verification would have to work in order to establish any type of agreement uh, relative to space assets. Uh, it's a very good point, and I think there's uh, a parallel here made with, you know, the, the Cold War arms control treaties. You know, they did not, they were preceded by the development of national technical means, particularly reconnaissance satellites, and then the treaties are crafted to be able to, uh, with what with kept in, we were crafted with what in mind we had of our verification capabilities, right? And the the negotiators are very careful to not sign up in the treaties that could not be uh, verified as a course to NTM. Uh, and it wasn't that we had the treaties and then the NTM. We had the NTM first and the treaties. Uh, so in that sense, you know, when I've always approached this subject, and that's why I've tried to talk more about behaviors in space more than objects. Um, because it's much easier through your space situation awareness to monitor behaviors and be able to see what's going on. And we've actually made, I would say, a fair bit of improvement the last 10 years uh, in terms of improving space situation capabilities. Still quite a long ways to go. Um, but, but, you know, as a first cut, that's why I would suggest approaching it. Uh, and, and yes, you know, developing us as a capabilities to a point where we're fairly confident we can, you know, detect. Uh, and attribute certain types of activities in space, such as maneuvers and close approaches, I think would be a prerequisite before talking about any kind of agreements for those. Well, and I'd, if I could just add to that, this is Bruce McDonald. Um, we were speaking before, I think, really about an um, important distinction between dialogue versus reaching agreements. Uh, because you do, there's a much higher threshold for reaching agreements. So I don't think we're going to negotiate what the, what the red lines are. But I think having dialogue about this uh, uh, can't uh, can't help but be but be useful, and you don't have to reveal all your cards uh, in the dialogue, particularly if it's uh, perhaps more of a track two kind of a thing. So uh, I take a number of the points that, that are that are made, uh, but uh, again, uh, I don't think we're talking. Uh, I, it would be a much higher threshold in my mind uh, to have uh, some kind of an agreement on uh, or treaty on on what red lines would be. Uh, back to Dean Chang. Oh, sorry, uh, just very quickly. Um, attribution has to be timely. Right now, we have a real problem there of simply figuring out what. Why did the satellite stop working? Was it an end life issue? Was it a micrometeorite collision? Was it deliberate jamming? Was it cyber interference? That makes you know, the le the less timely it is, the less deterrent effect it is. Second of all is. Again, about the red line aspect, if I fire a laser at a satellite, am I measuring the distance or am I trying to dazzle the sensors? And when no one is prepared to you know, even officially state that that was a dazzle effect, then in that case, again, attribution and red lines fall foul. I would note, however, Cyber Command this week reportedly warned certain Russian bad actors, apparently in text messages and other things, stop doing this. And it's interesting because that is both attribution and arguably deterrence. We know who you are, we know what you're doing, and we can reach out and touch you right now with a phone message. Maybe in the future it might be Excedrin Headache you know, 223. Um, the point here is that um, there are ways of sending more subtle messages that might be useful in thinking about, which don't necessarily hopefully rise to the front page of the New York Times. Hi, this is, this is Nick Wright. And just one, one further dimension I think is important. A lot of uh, 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 sort of escalation scenarios you really think about 
for example, in the East China Sea uh, or South China Sea involves uh, U.S. allies. And so a key dimension of the attribution is that allies believe what you say, and that involves building trust over time, uh, sharing information, and so on. Uh, and, and, you know, a good example of that is a recent, you know, the U.K. attribution of the uh, nerve agent uh, uh, to Russia. You know, uh, a key issue in attribution in any real-world scenario will be convincing your allies that what you're saying is correct and doing it in a timely fashion, as, as, as Dean said. Yeah, and this is Amrata. And the other problem with attribution is because there's also the dual use of technology. So uh, if you, a Chinese uh, uh, foreign policy spokesperson might turn around and say, well, we were actually doing safe debris management and cleaning. And I say this with a measure of seriousness because this is what happened when there was a 73-day standoff between China, Bhutan, and India, which nearly escalated to the level. And, and this is a serious conflict because both countries have nuclear weapons. And so when, it, when China was asked about how this happened, this person argued that, first of all, the decision was there was a deniability. So they argued that this was low-level commanders and this was so, – so there is a problem with that, too. And, and if you look at how they have behaved in the South China Sea, whenever there is an escalation of targeting Vietnamese oil rig, oil, you know, ships doing exploration, or the USS Larson when it went into the South China Sea, the uh, the argument and and when this was basically very aggressively questioned by Chinese fishermen, the uh, the conversation coming out of Beijing was that we are sorry, we had no control over these actors. They were rogue actors. And you would see that in the cyber domain, too. I mean, in my conversations, the argument was that these, these are the Red Hacker Alliance. We had no control over them. They are nationalistic Internet hackers. And so, sorry, you want us to claim and, and have a, some kind of ownership, but we just can't. So I think there is a problem with that, too. This is uh, Carl Gibson from the uh, headquarters Air Force. To add to the uh, awareness piece of the space problem is the environmental piece of tracking that across. Um, we talked about micrometeorites, but I'd also like to add, uh, in addition, you're looking at uh, whether it's magnetosphere disturbances or any other solar or even uh, extrasolar uh, influences that can affect our satellites. Attribution is further compact, uh, com complicated by those things, and that's one of the reasons that the Air Force works hard to uh, have a, a good contribution to the uh, SSA uh, architecture. Thank you. Hi, this is Teresa Hitchens. Um, I have a couple of questions with regard to um, sort of the overarching issue of signals. Every uh, Several speakers mentioned that the signal that you send has to be the signal that's received. And given that we seem to have an absence of dialogue with China about these issues, and that we have a very different way of looking at deterrence overall and space deterrence in particular, how can we send any signals at all that are going to be heard in the right way? And my second question is actually for Dean. Dean, in your, um, you had an escalation of a ladder. And I missed the fourth, the next to last one. So if you could just um, tell me that, actually. Thanks. Yeah, the deterrence ladder question is, is uh, lowest rung is, uh, is demonstration of forces and capabilities. Second uh, rung, next rung up is space exercises. 
So testing weapons is rung one. Space exercises is rung two. Deploying additional forces, we're moving forces that are already in orbit is rung three. And then what they term space shock and awe strikes would be rung four. Let me just note very quickly, that highest rung means the actual use of space weapons against other people. That is paralleled in Chinese writings on nuclear and information deterrence in terms of the, demo, the actual firing of a nuclear weapon as a warning shot and the use of actual cyber weapons to demonstrate the ability to take down parts of your adversary's information structure. So this is not unique to space. It is paralleled across Chinese writings on deterrent or waste of. <laughs> Sorry, do we have another question? Wait, I had an, um, nobody answered the question about I'm, signals. I was, I was leaning over to answer. Um, okay. So just, I mean, yeah, so, so I mean, basically you, 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 you raise a, a critical issue across every uh, aspect of escalation management, uh, every aspect of signaling, uh, uh, and not just in space, but in conventional uh, warfare, but basically everything. So even, for example, if you look at uh, a criminology, so when you send deterrent signals to criminals, so when the police or criminal justice uh, sends uh, deterrent signals uh, to criminals, uh, you'd think, good God, surely, surely the criminals have some broad understanding of the threat that's being made, uh, the probability something will happen, and so on. And actually, uh, the reality is uh, uh, most criminals don't really understand what threats uh, are made. Uh, they don't really uh, understand uh, uh, what, what, uh, much of what the deterrent threats are. And, and I suspect that um, this will be the case whatever we do. Uh, in space, uh, and um, but you can try and do things as best you can uh, to communicate as best you can. So things like using multiple channels, uh, things like using uh, clear signals as far as is possible. Uh, you know, and it's basically about improving communication. Uh, that, that's really the best we can do is, is, is make marginal improvement to the quality of the signal uh, we send. Uh, Teresa, just to add to that, this is Bruce McDonald again. Um, on the subject of signaling, uh, I mean, it, it is a uh, terribly important issue. Uh, that's why I think uh, having dialogue, not that you're going to change anybody's mind, but at least to get a little better appreciation for where they're coming from and maybe what is on their minds and tell them what is on our minds in a way that enhances security on both sides, that at least... It, it, it enables, it, it should better enable us to at least interpret what they're saying through the, the, the prism of whatever understanding we have about them and, and how they see deterrence and, and things like that. Uh, that if you don't have that kind of uh, dialogue and you're talking two different languages, then I think that you're more likely, at least at the margins, to, uh, to run into misunderstanding and misinterpretation. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I think that. Uh, keep one's eyes wide open when one has a dialogue, but I, I think that dialogue uh, would, would help provide a little insight on both sides. We should want them to a little better understand us, and we should certainly want to better understand them. And actually, I just want to raise one other, one, one other really good example of that. So over the last decade, there has been a change in Chinese understanding of escalation management. Uh, and so, for example, there's a very nice uh, review by Alistair and Johnson from Harvard, uh, who's been doing a lot of work uh, 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 dealing uh, with 
uh, Chinese thinking on escalation. And they have changed. They have, over the last 10, 15 years, they've got a much better understanding of U.S. thinking on escalation. And they have started to change the way they think about escalation so that it's less about deliberate escalation and it, it involves more of an inadvertent uh, uh, risk of escalation. So, you know, things like war games, multiple channels of communication, track two, all that type of stuff, it does help. It's not a magic bullet, but it has to, it, it has to be done and, and it does help. This is Peter Gertz, and I'd like to just address Teresa's question a little bit as well. So, you know, I think that you have to consider that you, you start from a position where it's difficult to understand any other in their attention, and you're going to wonder about, you know, attributing the, the worst. But one of the things that I think helps out a lot is if you can respond, and here we're talking about, I guess there are two implied questions, right? One is, how do you keep yourself far away from the high-end threshold that, that scares us all in nuclear war? And then how do you behave yourself in the gray zone conflict in between? And I think the right answer is that if you're elbowed a little, you need to elbow a little back early and often so that you're teaching and conditioning the other party to believe in your actions. And here it's extremely unhelpful if you don't have in-kind assets. If you are forced to say, I will respond at a place and time of my choosing, and that means it has to be a multi-domain, in another domain, in a, you know, in a horizontal escalation, you, and if you have to take a long time to do that, you're going to reduce the opportunities for, for conditioning the other side and learning. So what you want to have is you want to have in-kind capabilities that you can respond symmetrically and quickly to a provocation. That way, your chance of them receiving the wrong signal uh, is much less. So by that, don't, by that, don't we have to flip that around and realize that by, by using that, that we're cor perhaps cornering them? Well, it, so, so I, I would, the other aspect of that is, you know, you know, we've already talked about how we do not have symmetric capabilities. And so it's very difficult to come up to find a way that, let's say, you know, China elbows a DSP satellite or cyber satellite. What's the symmetric thing we do in return? There really isn't anything at the moment, and that's that's a real challenge to think about. If it is an asymmetric situation, it's very hard to come up with a symmetric response, especially because if the Chinese do not have their own missile early warning satellites, <clears throat> then what is the parallel? Let me though uh, go to a more basic first principle: learn the other side's language. I don't mean the language of, of body language or protocol. If you do not, if we cannot read their materials, if we cannot speak or at least listen in on their conversations at the table, then it is going to be a heck of a lot harder to know what signals they are sending because every translation is by definition somewhat inaccurate. That's just the nature of two different languages. Excellent. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> All right, Nicole, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, so I was just going to say that we've run out of time today, but this has been a fantastic panel discussion, and I'd like to thank everyone for dialing in and thank everyone for presenting today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to you. Thank you very much, Nicole. All right, goodbye.